world so messed up? You're clear that it is messed up, aren't you? Why are people so messed up? Two world wars, the Holocaust, the genocide in Rwanda, the savage brutality of ISIS, uh, the, the growing stories about modern day slavery that's not really gone away, increasing talk of pedophile rings in high places, corruption in FIFA, corruption in the banks. And they all basically, all of that sort of challenges this notion that we're basically good, doesn't it? It's amazing to people that, to me, that people hold on to that idea that people are basically good. When every key in our pocket is a silent witness, the fact is that we're, we're messed up people. This world has got serious problems. Now, many different solutions, of course, have been proposed. The one that they often resort to on question time on the TV is, well, we, we, we should educate people. More education. Uh, or a better economy. Or better political leaders. Or better health care. Or more science. More medication. More culture. More arts. There's all sorts of answers out there. Uh, maybe we need to return to a simpler, holistic life. Others have said, well, we need more religion. That's what we need. If people went to church more, if people uh, were engaged in religious ritual, then we would have a better society. And what's more, we'd get right with God. And the Jewish leaders at the time of Jesus would be very much in that camp of, of the more religion group. If more people kept to their religious practices, kept to their religious rituals, then the world would be a far better place. And so they got very nervous about Jesus. Uh, they just heard more and more reports of his popularity, the influence he was having. And uh, they were concerned because he seemed to be undermining what they held to be very important. And so some leaders were dispatched to go to see Jesus from the capital city of Jerusalem. And I want us to read what took place. So why don't you open your Bibles to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15. And you'll find that on page 982. Page 982 in the Red Church Bibles. Matthew's Gospel, chapter 15. Let me read the first 20 verses. Then some Pharisees and teachers of the law came to Jesus from Jerusalem and asked, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands before they eat. Jesus replied, And why do you break the command of God for the sake of your tradition? For God said, Honor your father and mother. And anyone who curses his father or mother must be put to death. But you say that if a man says to his father or mother, whatever help you might otherwise have received from me is a gift devoted to God, he is to honor, he is not to honor his father with it. Thus you nullify 
the word of God for the sake of your tradition. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules taught by men. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean. But what comes out of his mouth, that is what makes him unclean. Then the disciples came to him and asked, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this? He replied, Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be pulled up by the roots. Leave them. They are blind guides. If a blind man leads a blind man, both will fall into a pit. Peter said, Explain the parable to us. Are you still so dull? Jesus asked them. Don't you see that Whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then out of the body. But the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what makes a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. This is God's word. Keep your Bibles open as we just work through uh, this part of Matthew's gospel. Even though the questions about the disciples, you're not fooled, are you? That uh, this is really an indirect attack on Jesus. Verse 2, why do your disciples, you see where the finger's pointing? Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? They don't wash their hands. Now, what are they upset about? It's, it's not about hygiene. This isn't sort of what your mother told you when you were a child. Now, go and wash your hands before coming to eat. It's not that that they're concerned about. For them, uh, the inattention to this uh, hand washing was an inattention to religious ritual that made them unclean before God. The Old Testament laws had lots of rules about how the priests were to behave, how the priests were to act before they entered into the tabernacle or into the temple. And they had to wash themselves, to purify themselves before they went into that holy place. But by the time of Jesus, the Pharisees, uh, who were not priests, taught that everyone needed to live as if they were a priest. But the law given through Moses was was not enough to cover all the possibilities. And so they come up with a whole series of other uh, rules and uh, recommendations of how you could live this kind of um, cleansed life and not be defiled, not be unclean. And uh, it was grandly called the tradition of the elders. You feel the weight of that? The tradition of the elders. And so they'd come up with a whole list of unwritten traditions and practices that were taught as the way that people should live. Now, for example, one of their big problems was kind of mixing with a Gentile like me, a non-Jewish person. 
See, if you went down to the marketplace to get food and, and you touched a Gentile person, a non-Jewish person, for them, that, that defiled you. They were spiritually contaminated. It would make queuing at Littles quite tricky, wouldn't it? The reason it's so cheap, there's only two people on the counter, isn't there? Anyway, that's another story. But, you know, you're bushing up to people, you'd be defiled. And given all these opportunities of bumping up against Gentiles, you could be uh, unclean, ceremony and clean quite a lot. So they washed a lot. A lot of hand washing, a lot of washing of pots and pans. And, and they were shocked. They were shocked because the disciples of Jesus did not seem to be following these, these rituals, these rules, which was actually quite damning evidence against their rabbi, Jesus. And that's why they've come to... Uh, start this little inquisition. Although it's stated in, in, in a sort of one sentence, it's really two questions. And we're going to consider that this morning. First question is this, why don't your disciples live according to the tradition of the elders? And Jesus deals with that in verses 3 to 9. And then the second part of it is, why do they make themselves unclean by not washing their hands? And Jesus deals with that in verses 10 to 20. That's how the text breaks down. So let's think about the first part then. Uh, why don't the disciples keep the tradition of the elders? And you have to say, Jesus didn't go for small talk here, did he? He kind of went for the jugular. Uh, and it's strong stuff. Look at verse 7. You hypocrites. Isaiah was right when he prophesied about you. These people honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. They worship me in vain. Their teachings are but rules by men. Now, who's he speaking to? These are very impressive religious people. They were very respected in Israel. They took the whole of the Old Testament as the word of God. They were very careful to obey every single part of it. They prayed. They fasted. They gave a tenth of all that they had. They never missed their spiritual festivals. Always went to church. Uh, they applied the Bible to their lives. And yet Jesus' assessment of them is this. You hypocrites! Whew. What's more, Isaiah, uh, in the book that you revere, he's speaking about you when he talks about hypocrites. They were play-acting in their worship of God. Now notice the problem here. It's not about being irreligious. There was lots of religious activity. Lots of religious ritual. Lots of honoring of the Lord with their lips. The observance of the Sabbath and, and attending the temple and all this hand washing. But the problem was that it was all empty, Jesus says. Their hearts, in fact, were far off from God. Quite a thing, isn't it? Doing all the right stuff, being in all the right places, spending all that time reading the, the Bible, the Old Testament, and yet he says it's all empty. The honor they gave God was a pretense. The worship of their lips was not reflected in their lives. And how, how do we know that? Well, it was visible in what they taught, Jesus says. Because instead of teaching the word of God, what they really focused on, what they were excited about, what they ended up teaching was their tradition. The tradition of the elders. And it showed where their hearts really were. 
all this uh, outward show. Uh, it looked very impressive, looked as if they were very devout, very pious, but actually it was just outward worship. It was vain worship. See, according to Jesus, the answer to the world's problems is not more religion. We have a messed up world, and the answer is not more religion. Religious activity doesn't necessarily mean that people are engaging in the worship of the true and living God. There can be very impressive shows of piety, great rituals, bells and smells, vestment, Latin prayers, confessionals, and it can be empty ritual. There can be uh, exuberant, prolonged singing times, great bands, lots of fervent prayers, people shouting hallelujah, but it can all be vain worship. Now, what would Jesus say about our gathering today? How would he describe you and me? Are we play-acting? Are we acting out formal religion? Or are we worshipping God with, with all of our lives? Well, how would we know? Well, here's one measure. What is it that we teach and live by? What is it that we're excited about? See, the particular hypocrisy that Jesus exposes in this uh, encounter with them is the way that they elevated their tradition above the Bible above the scriptures. So remember in verse 2, they'd accused Jesus of, uh, Jesus' disciples of breaking their traditions. And his stinging rebuke in verse 3 is, well, why do you break the command of God for the sake of your traditions? You know, if in this hand I've got the traditions, here I've got the word of God, they say, well, why don't you keep the traditions? And Jesus would say, well, why do you ignore the Bible and uphold your traditions? The truth is that tradition plays a big part in all of our lives because we're all creatures of habit. Many of you like to sit in exactly the same pew every single week. So much so you feel you have a dementia right to it. And if someone sits in your seat, you're just feeling a little bit out of joint because this is my seat. And I wonder whether when we go into the new building, whether you'll be getting your protractors out and working out... In relation to the pulpit, where would I be sitting? At Rose Street. And we're all like that because we're all creatures of habit. We just kind of get into it. The great warning of this chapter is that it's possible that our traditions can become more important to us than the Word of God. That's the scary possibility. That's the real challenge of this section to us today. The danger that our traditions can trump the word of God. And the example that Jesus picks for them was this teaching about giving to the temple. Interesting that we're doing this on the final pledge day. But, uh, you know, as people gave and dedicated money to the upkeep of the temple... Uh, Mark tells us that this idea was called Corban. It's an idea of deferred giving. So, to, uh, you know, a, a person may will property to a charity uh, at his or her death, although retaining possession of that property and proceeds until then. 
And to say something was korban was to treat it as if it were a gift to God. And so Jesus' example is of this man who instead of using his money to support his older parents in financial need at a time where there was no uh, social services, uh, he declares it instead korban. You know, one day he's going to give it to the temple. So, very sorry, mum and dad, can't give you a penny. Sorry, love to. Korban. Uh, it's all dedicated to the Lord's. And the Pharisee tradition said that it was more important to keep the Korban promise than to provide for your parents, even if they were destitute. Now, they insisted on this despite the clear teaching of God's word in the fifth commandment in Exodus chapter 20 that Jesus quotes in verse for God said you say but God said honor your father and mother now as a side application here we should notice that it's very clear from the whole Bible both from the Old Testament from the teaching of Jesus that we should seek to honor our parents that's an important part of the way that God has ordered this world of of what obedience to God looks like for us that we should seek to honor our parents even when they can be a bit difficult at times we should seek to honor our parents and under the Old Testament covenant it's not true today but under the Old Testament covenant if someone cursed his parents that was a capital offense pretty serious and that's why Jesus calls them hypocrites because verse 6 you nullify the word of God by your tradition they'd set up these rules to such a point that they even rendered the word of God empty useless they actually did the exact opposite to what the word of God said now the question is are we ever in danger of doing that ourselves and historically we'd have to say Yes, we are always in danger of that. Charlotte Chapel stands in the Protestant tradition. And that means that we agree with the 16th century reformers in their protest of the way that the Roman Catholic Church has elevated traditions over Scripture. So teachings about transubstantiation at the, uh, at the communion service, that the bread turns into the body of Christ, that the, that the wine turns into the blood of Christ, and that happens at every Mass, is something that we don't find in Scripture. The teaching of purgatory, the teaching about indulgences, the teaching of the unique authority of the Pope, or Mary as a sinless person who was elevated into heaven and is a co-mediator for prayer, or that priests should not marry. All these different things are traditions that actually end up nullifying the word of God and the reformers protested against it and in truth as the Roman Catholic Church is unchanged on these things even though we don't shout about it we protest against it we stand in that Protestant tradition if you go looking in the 66 books you just not find them there and these these verses are crystal clear that even though there are ancient traditions you know, over time say well these have been traditions in the church now for for hundreds and hundreds of years. Well, they're still just merely human teaching that's been passed on. In sharp contrast to Scripture, which has the final divine authority. See, the, the Pharisees grandly call, uh, 
call it their traditions, the tradition of the elders. Jesus describes in verse 3 and verse 6, your tradition. Their rules taught by men, verse 9. And that's in contrast to the very words of God. For God said, verse 4. It's the word of God that is the authority, the final authority, according to Jesus. And that's why it is tragic, and I really am genuinely grieved to see the Church of Scotland start new traditions that nullify the word of God. And their recent General Assembly, they have basically voted to permit same-sex marriage for ministers, while at the same time holding to the teaching that same-sex marriage is wrong. Now, they're right. It is wrong. Scripture's clearly opposed. And formally, they, they, they hold to that teaching, but they say it's okay for their minister to actually be involved in a same-sex marriage. And so you've got a ludicrous position that, 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 that a minister cannot conduct a same-sex marriage, but actually be in it. How bizarre. You nullify the word of God by your tradition so we must never let traditions or man-made rules take authority over the word of God it alone is supreme Uh, the attitude that we have as a church is we sit under the word of God this rules over us and if we see that our practices or are unbiblical or if they undermine God's word well we need to change it we need to keep reforming ourselves against the word of God And even when our practices uh, are not necessarily unbiblical, like washing your hands, for example, we must be careful not to force that on other people or stand in judgment over them because they don't do things the way we think you should do them. And so we do get very attached to how we do things in our church, don't we? Every church does. It's it's just one of these problems. uh, An old church has lots of traditions. And so actually the way we appoint our leaders... Uh, the way decisions are made, the way we organize church communion, uh, whether the cups are glass or plastic, we can get really worked up about those things. Um, Whether the minister wears a suit, whether he wears a tie or not, people can get really bent out of shape uh, if, if you're not wearing the right clothes. And uh, so many things like that. Which version of the Bible that you use? Um, the musical instruments and style of music. We can get really uptight and very specific that this, this is the way to do it. This, this is our tradition. This is how we do things. And every church is like that. And so it's okay to have your traditions as long as they don't go against the word of God. But we should not look to impose them as straitjackets on, on others. So if you remember back to the two questions uh, of the Pharisees, the first one was this, well, why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? Well, it was an issue of tradition over Scripture. And in short, Jesus' answer was this, those traditions are only human and are not essential for the disciples to follow. And neither are the Pharisees particularly good examples to follow because their religion was all external rather than internal. The second part is in verses... um, 10 to 20 and it deals with the question of why do they make themselves unclean by not washing their hands 
And the big issue here is what, what does make you unclean before God? Is it external things or internal things? Is the problem out there or is the problem in here? And the Pharisees have basically worked out a load of extra rules, the tradition of the elders, about how you could become unclean. When I was in primary school in Wales, we had a game called, uh, in the playground, the dreaded lurgy. Looking back, it was quite a cruel game about excluding people. But basically, one person, and I don't know how we organized it, one person had the dreaded lurgy, and you all spent the rest of the playtime running away from the person with the dreaded lurgy. Because if they touched you, you've got the dreaded lurgy, right? And the Pharisees saw uncleanness as something external. And if you touch someone who's unclean, you got the dreaded lurgy. And that's how they viewed it. Well, Jesus challenges that whole thing in verses 10 to 20. Look at verse 10. They've got it all wrong. And that Jesus makes pronouncements to the whole crowd. Jesus called the crowd to him and said, Listen and understand. What goes into a man's mouth does not make him unclean. But what comes out of his mouth, this is what makes him unclean. This is actually a very revolutionary statement. Mark uh, points out in his gospel account that this is uh, Jesus saying that basically all foods are clean. That all the dietary laws of the Old Testament are, are no longer relevant because he, the fulfillment of scriptures, has come. It's a very profound statement. Matthew doesn't particularly focus on that. But he, he wants us to see that um, the problem is not outside. It's not external. The problem is inside of us. That's what makes us unclean. And this completely disorientated the disciples. It was so contrary to what the Pharisees taught. And so privately they say to Jesus, well, don't you know you offended them? I think he probably worked out he offended them. Calling people hypocrites generally does that, doesn't it? And, and Jesus says, look, they're blind guides. Pay no attention to them. Just because people are in religious garb and uh, have fancy titles doesn't mean you should pay any attention to them if they're blind guides, if they're elevating tradition over scripture. Leave them. And Peter, who I love him, he's so straightforward, isn't he? Could you explain it to us, Jesus? Isn't it it good when someone does that? Like everyone's thinking it, but no one said it. But Jesus does say, you're being a bit dim. Are you so dull? And the answer was yes. Yes, he was. Uh, a bit blind at this point. And so Jesus explains, verse 17, a bit of human anatomy. Don't you see that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach, then out of the body? But the things that come out of the mouth, here's the spiritual reality, the things that come out of the mouth come from the heart. And these make a man unclean. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual morality, theft, false testimony, slander. These are what make a man unclean. But eating with unwashed hands does not make him unclean. This may seem very esoteric, uh, this discussion about ritual hand washing, but actually this issue just brings it right up to date. This is our issue. Whether you are Jew or a Gentile, the problem is not external to us. The problem is not a lack of outward religious ritual. It is internal. Our problem is the problem of the human heart. Now, most people do see that the world is messed up, but the solutions that people often give are so superficial because they don't realize how radical the problem is or they don't face up to it. 
I think every generation probably tries to make the world a better place, doesn't it? Better than they found it. Every politician promises that they will succeed where others have failed. And the problem is often pointed, um, the, the problem that is often pointed to is that it, it, is, it is those people over there that are the problem, and they've got the solution. And, uh, uh, you know, historically the left has blamed the, the rich, the bourgeoisie, the fat cats, the CEOs, the far right blame the immigrants, the illegals, the ecologists blame big business, big business blames the ecologists, the SNP blame the Tories, and the Tories blame the SNP. And every movement fastens onto this idea. It's other people that are the problem, and we're the solution. But listen to Jesus. The heart of the human problem is the problem of the human heart. The world is messed up because, quite simply, I am messed up. I have a sinful nature. The reason the world is messed up is because we are, are people at our roots, deep within us, are predisposed to evil. So out of the heart comes evil thoughts. That's where it starts, bubbling up inside of us. Don't you find this? Some really twisted ideas just seem to pop into my head. Twisted thoughts, nasty thoughts. And uh, the problem is that uh, sometimes those nasty thoughts turn into reality. Those ideas get acted out. And so we hate and hate and hate enough that actually an opportunity comes and we murder. We lust, we lust, we lust in our thoughts. And then comes the opportunity where we're unfaithful to our spouses. Uh, adultery is now becoming a billion dollar business through apps as people arrange hookups outside of marriage. We pursue sexual gratification outside marriage. We, uh, we want stuff. We're greedy. We want it. We want it. And so we steal. Um, we want to make life easy for ourselves. So we lie. We want to feel better about ourselves and put other people down. So we demean and we defame others. And being outwardly religious just adds hypocrisy to all those other sins. That's why the world is so messed up, Jesus says, is because we have evil hearts. We have wicked and deceitful hearts that actually refuse to admit how bad our condition is. And so we should be in no doubt that actually the greatest problem with having sinful hearts is not the damage that they do to others, which is significant, but that they defile us before God. God hates our sin. He hates our lust and our porn addiction, our adultery, our theft, our pride, and our slander. And for all these sins, the anger of God is against us. But what can be done when you have a sinful heart? You know, if it's your, if it's your hand that's the problem with your eye, well, you could chop it off or gouge it out. But what can you do if it's the totality of yourself? We need brand new hearts. We need clean hearts. Any solution that doesn't deal with this fundamental problem will fail. More religion will not fix the problem. Can you know, water washing pots and pans in our hands deal with the problem of the human heart? No. Can't deal with the evil of our human hearts. The problem can only be solved 
when through trusting Jesus Christ, we receive the cleansing that comes from his sacrifice upon the cross. What can wash away my sins? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. What can make me whole again? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. Now, do you agree with this passage? Do you agree with Jesus? Do you think he's talking about you? Do you realize you're a hopeless case? I know I am. And that's why I became a Christian. If you realize this, then turn to God today. Ask him to forgive you and cleanse you. Ask him to give you a a new heart by his Holy Spirit to make you born again from the inside out. Religion is a waste of time unless God is at work transforming our human hearts, taking our hard hearts and giving us soft, obedient hearts to him. Why not turn to him today and ask him to do that for you if you've not done it before? Let's pray.